my name is Don. Try to hang that one on and stay sober. (laughs) Don said, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of the Tuesday Night Investment Club group in Urbana, Illinois, during the warm summer months. And during the winter, I'm a member of the 12 noon Big Gulp meeting in Marco Island, Florida. (laughs) We got some applause over here. In fact, that's where we were just a just a week ago. We came back from Florida, been down there since October, and uh, and because of those groups and uh, meetings like this and uh, people like you, uh, my sobriety date is October twenty third, nineteen sixty nine. I didn't know if you gave sobriety dates up here. Uh, I have talked places where if you didn't give your sobriety date, they'd pull you off the platform. <laughs> And uh, and there would be a big sigh, and a lot of people might leave. So, being this is my first trip to Ohio, I thought maybe I'd better uh, work that in. I, I'm no way boasting. I'm just uh, testifying for what this organization will do. And, and believe me, no one is more thrilled about me being sober than me, uh, because it's been a great thing. Um, I enjoy meetings like this. They're always special. Uh, we always have a good time. There's always a lot of drama involved. There's an intensity about them. We have a lot of fun. We have a good time and uh, and a lot of laughter. And, and I think the reason that, the, that this occurs is because we're brought together by our tragedies. And, uh, and we're alive because of each other. Now, I don't know about you, but I found it kind of tough out there. I didn't join this organization because I saw the light. I came in here because I felt the heat, and it was tough out there the last few times I was there. So I'm pleased to be with you at uh, at this very special meeting and to be able to kick it off. And I think Mary here's done a fine job. My goodness, I've never been made over like this. They have a signer. They have someone in Spanish. Uh, I uh, ask Anna Maria over there, como se llama, which is about all the Spanish I know. What is your name? And she told me, and and uh, told me I was going to have to go real slow, which is almost impossible if these Spanish people were to uh, to show up. So uh, I thought Mary uh, handled the introduction quite well. Uh, you know, it's not easy to introduce a drunk. Uh, it, there, well, I've never heard anyone get up here and expound on the educational background of a drunk, have you? Uh, no one seems to care uh, who you know or what you know. No one seems to care whether you got money or haven't got money. Uh, the most important se- uh, piece of data seems to be where do they come from. Uh, so there's not much to work with. Uh, so uh, I thought Mary handled that well. And we just, just got started up here uh, uh, I've heard a lot of introductions, and I suppose all of you have too. I was doing a meeting in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, some time ago, and it was a business meeting, and the chairman got up there, and they introduced a speaker, and we had a lot of them that day, built him up, 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 says, you're going to enjoy this great man, said he made a million dollars in the oil business out in California. Well, the speaker got up there, and he shuffled his notes around a little bit. He said, what the chairman said about me is essentially so. He says, the only thing, it uh, wasn't the oil business, it was a coal business. And he said, it wasn't California, it was Pennsylvania. And he said, it wasn't a million dollars, it was a hundred thousand dollars, and it wasn't me, it was my brother, and he didn't make it, he lost it. <laughs> so, you can see how well you did, Mary. Uh, she got it all right. <laughs> I always enjoy the open meetings like this. I bet we got some Al-Anons in here. Uh, when we have the open meetings, normally uh, normally this happens. Now, in the middle of the afternoon, you never know. I've never spoken in the middle of the afternoon. Well, except one time about 15 years ago, I was out in Las Vegas, and they had me to speak at 2.30 in the afternoon, but, but you expect unusual things uh, out in Las Vegas. And believe me, you won't be disappointed if you go out there to some of their roundup. But uh, it's always good to see the Al-Anons. Uh, my wife uh, belongs to Al-Anon. Almost 27 years that she has in the Al-Anon program. And, and her case was so acute <laughs> that it became necessary to start her in Al-Anon before I even got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> it was that bad. But you know, she'd been going for, I don't know, six or eight weeks, and I kind of enjoyed it because I could drink at home and watch television and, and then bring my liquor in, and she was going to these Al-Anon meetings, but I got a little suspicious, you know. I saw a little change in her, uh, 
and she would leave early. She would come home late. She was smiling. Uh, uh, everything I said wasn't turned around to a drinking problem. I got a little confused. So I said, I think I'll go with you Wednesday night and check out this Alcoholics Anonymous business, if it's all right with you. And, and it was. So uh, we went to the church on a Wednesday night. Well, now we had the AA meeting over here, and then the Al-Anon meeting was back here. And we go in, and she drops me off at the AA meeting, and... Uh, and before she left, she whispered something to the chairman. Now, I don't know what she said, but this is what I think she said. I think she said, if you'll sober him up, boys, I'll keep him humble. <laughs> and, and I want you to know she's still working at her job today. <laughs> we were coming home the other night from a social event. She looked over at me. She said, did I ever tell you? That you were handsome and witty and vivacious and just a regular devil with the women folks? Well, I said, no, dear, uh, no, you never did. Well, she said, I wonder what gave you that idea at the party tonight. <laughs> well, she's good at it. <laughs> she's good at it. You may have guessed by now that when I come out, I like to have a good time. I think Alcoholics Anonymous should be a good time. Now, the reason I say that is when I came into this organization... I felt that I had seen the last of the good times. I thought it was all over, that it was a glum lot as described in our big book, and that I would never again have a good time. So I think it's important when we get together in the, in the big meetings, in the small meetings, uh, the meetings that we have in our homes, the coffee shops, I think it's important that we exhibit, especially to the new people, that we are cheerful and joyful and happy people and that we can have a good time. I believe that laughter is one of the greatest healing agents that we have for the disease of alcoholism and also the people that we've affected. That if we can have a good time and we can laugh, that we're going to get well. Things are actually going to, to be better. And I always get excited about the miracles that I see in this program. Now, when I came in here, uh, my idea of a miracle was just being able to find your car. Uh, if I could just find my car when I was out there drinking you know, and, and get into it and get it started and get home without the police getting me, that was a miracle. Now, there were many times that I'd get a half a miracle. Uh, and, 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 and bad things would happen. But I didn't know until I come in here and got actively involved with you that God presents to us his miracles through people. And it seems like any time that, that I need to see another miracle, the man upstairs will introduce me to another alcoholic or another member of Al-Anon and tell me that you can be part of this thing and go out there and watch this miracle happen. So if the next few days, if you're looking for miracles, positive change in your life, see, there's no reason why in this program that we should let our lives become a dumping ground for our dreams. There's no reason for that. Life should not be an endurance test the way that I used to live it. That's the way it was with me when I was drinking, and maybe you can relate to that too. It was endurance, that's all. It was just another day of endurance. There's no reason for it to be that way. So if you want uh, the good life, if you're looking for a change, if you want to be happy, you want to have some fun, I'd say that you're in the, the right meeting. Now, I was raised down here in southern Illinois, right down here where the Bible Belt and the Poverty Belt merge. Uh, right down there, about 65 miles across from St. Louis. And I was the youngest of four boys, and I had drinks with all of my brothers, yet I was the only one that came up with the, uh, with the alcohol problem. Now, I came from what we call down there a uh, get-by family. Now, if you don't know what that is, I just described it. Uh, we just got by. Uh, by today's standards, we would probably have a social worker or two. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, we didn't worry about the wolf hanging around our door. He'd already been inside and had a batch of pups under the stove. Uh, we were economically deprived, as I recall this thing. Now, in, student, in uh, school, I was just an average student. Uh, in fact, I didn't like school. The only thing that really kept me in school was sports. Uh, I was captain of the baseball team for four years. I was captain of the uh, basketball team for two years. And uh, seeing no one falling out of their chair or overly uh, impressed by the magnitude of what I just said here, uh, maybe we ought to run through that again a little bit. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that the, the t they said I made the most baskets, I hit the most home runs, and, uh, and, and I enjoyed it. This is what, uh, what kept me going. And 
being involved in this program for the last uh, many years has given me an opportunity to travel all over the world. <laughs> and uh, But I've coined a phrase, and I'd like to share it with you. Of all the places in the world I've been, there's no place like first place. And I find that a lot of people that are involved in our program have that same attitude. There's nothing like having the EST on the end of everything we do, the greatest, the best. I remember uh, several years ago, my wife and I were attending a meeting out in Massachusetts, and uh, we ended up with a plate of ribs at this conference, and, and there was a fellow that was a priest there at this one table, and, and my wife said, let's go over and, and, and visit with this priest. And we went over there, and we got to visiting with him, and, and it was Father Vincent that wrote that little book on acceptance. And we got to talking, and my wife whipped her book out and had him autograph that thing, and he did. Well, I didn't want her to upstage me, so I whipped mine out. And and, and Father Vince and I had been sharing all the places we had been and talked and things that we had done. And so I asked him to, to write a little inscription on my book. Well, I thought he might write something that would be the other rather uplifting and inspiring. And he just wrote on there, from one poor slob to another. <laughs> and signed his name, <laughs> Father Vincent. But I got interested in some of his books, and, and he wrote a book called Me, Myself, and You. And, and I got to reading that book, and he explains in there one of the problems that we possibly face, and particularly people who suffer from the disease of alcoholism, is accepting the fact that there's a possibility that we might be average. Can you imagine that? I don't want to be average. Do you want to be average? But he says that's one of our problems, is accepting the thing that we might be average. Well, when I was growing up between my uh, my eighth grade and entering in my freshman year in high school, uh, during the summer, I worked in grocery store. And I noticed every afternoon about 2.30, 3 o'clock, when it was real hot and nothing was moving, I mean, even the flies stood still and you just wanted to take a little nap, the proprietor of the grocery store would go across the street and he would meet some of the other people, uh, some of the other merchants, and they would have a little meeting and he'd come back about 15 or 20 minutes and he was all fired up and full of full of vinegar and ready to go. And I asked him, I said, what happens over there? All you merchants meet over there, you go dragging in and you come firing out there like bullets. Well, he says, we have a little coffee royal. Well, I said, I'd like to have some coffee royal sometime. Well, he said, we'll see. Well, about three weeks later, he got ready to go and he yelled at me. And he said, come on over. And we went over and we got in this back room of this little grocery store and he said, pour down some coffee royal. Well, now, I didn't know that they had laced that hot black coffee with whiskey until I drank it. And when I drank it, something miraculously happened. When I drank that, I felt the way I'd always wanted to feel. And I didn't know that I wanted to feel that way until I felt it. I mean, everything was great. That drink of whiskey did for me what the phone booth does for Clark Kent. I mean, I was moving. And from that time until I became actively involved with you, I had an obsession to drink alcohol. And I got out of school and I went to work for the Illinois Central Railroad. I worked there as a telegrapher. I was promoted real quick to a train dispatcher, chief train dispatcher, and and it was just wonderful. I was it was a good living. I was drinking more whiskey. I was drinking better whiskey. I was being careful not to get caught on the job. They looked down on that, but it was good. But then after working there eleven years, the steam engine started to leave and the diesel started coming in, and it was a seniority thing. And us younger fellows, we started losing losing out. So I had to, to find a new profession, and I did. I became a salesman. You would never have guessed that, but I went out and I got into the uh, to the sales field, and I want you to know something happened there. I'd never I never had anything like the American system of free enterprise. I'd never seen it in action before. I, I became a capitalist overnight. I'd always worked eight hours a day, forty hours a week. You made so much money, and if that wasn't enough money, come payday, you made other arrangements. But in the sales field, I was a straight commission salesman. The more you sold, the more you made. And if you didn't make enough on Friday, you just go ahead and work Saturday. Why, it was wonderful. Why, I made money. Why, I was written up in the trade magazines and the newspaper. It was great. And drinking more whiskey and better whiskey. Oh, it was just a great life. Uh, big, big money. Well, finally, there was a new company that was being formed right there in Champaign-Urbana, University of Illinois town. And, 
And the principals came to me and asked me if I would be a corporate officer and if I would put the sales organization and the sales material together and launch the sales of this thing, which I did. At one time, I had 220 salesmen working for me in the state of Illinois. And I mean, we kept them moving. I used to get them into a meeting like this and we'd do a little organized yelling and a little jumping up and down and I'd put those birds out in the street and put them out there to make those sales. And once I got them going, then I'd go over to the hotel in my room and drink in the room. You don't want to drink with the help. It's bad, bad way to get started. Some of them will start following you around. But I'd get over there and then, then I, I would drink. And then I'd spend a lot of time on the road. And to keep that many people going, you had to have sales meeting about every night somewhere. So normally on Friday night, I would find myself driving home maybe three, four, five hours on the road that I had to drive home. And this was hap what was happening on this one particular time. And this is before someone had warned me about the dangers. You know, when you're out there, they say it's okay to think and it's okay to drink. But don't try to think and drink. Because it just won't work. So I was coming home on a Friday night, and I was drinking, as I usually did. I had my bottle in the car, and I was thinking. And I got to thinking, there's a bunch of crazy people out here driving automobiles on this road. And one of them may hit you one of these nights. And what you better do is make sure that your family's taken care of. And you're in the insurance business now. You better buy a bunch more. So, Monday, as busy as I was, come Monday morning, I finally found 15 minutes that I could go by and see our company doctor and take the examination that you have to take to buy more life insurance. I went in to see the doctor. He looked at my eye, throat, temperature, felt my pulse, uh, took the blood pressure, and, and he, he kind of backed off and he scrawled a little bit. And I looked at him and I said, well, Doc, uh, how do I stand? Well, he said, that's what I can't figure out. <laughs> uh, he said, you're not in very good shape. <laughs> For a guy uh, 36, 37 years old, he said, you're a little overweight. He says, your blood pressure is is pretty bad and, and, he, and he said you just appear to be a little stressed out and he said I recommend that you go over to Carl Clinic and see your regular doctor over there and, and see if you can get something done over there he says you need to get on a program of some kind so I took his advice I went over and I see this other doctor he did the same thing eyes, nose, throat, temperature, pulse all that stuff and he said I think we can help you I think we can get you straightened out he said I want to see you once a week then I'll see you every two weeks and I'll see you every three weeks and he said we'll get her down to a month and and he said, well, it didn't work that way. He may have had a plan, but it didn't fit into mine. After about five, six weeks, I went in to see the doc, and uh, he had me jump up on his stool, and he threw the blood pressure thing on my arm, and uh, and his face kind of froze, and I said, have we got a problem, doc? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what is it? He said, according to the gauge, you should be having a stroke right now. And, and he said, you just sit down here and settle down a little bit, and I'll be back in a few minutes. And, and he came back, and he finished the examination. I sat down on the stool there, and, and uh, he said, we must talk. Now, he said, the, the way you're living, he said, your body is not going to take this thing much longer. He said, it won't work. And, and besides, by this time, he had been questioning me on how much I drank. And uh, and he, he he obviously was one of these fellows who did not appreciate good liquor uh, because he that's all he could talk about was the drinking and and finally just laid it on the line. He says you've got to stop drinking and you got to get off that job. And he said that's what I recommend that you do is you stop drinking and get off the job. Take about a month off, get yourself together, and then go find another job. And you'll make more money. Because he says, you'll be dead at 55 the way you're going now. He says, if you take my advice, you'll live to be 75, 80, 85, and the extra money you'll make, he says, it'll work out for you. He said, hold out your hand. Well, now it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had had no liquor for lunch. And I'd been sitting on my hand. And I finally pried one of them out from under my leg and, and held it out, and it was just a blur. He thought I was waving goodbye. And he said, no, I mean this. He said, this is serious business. Now, he said, this is serious business. you got to do this. Well, I finally just got up and left. And, and I went down to one of my favorite pubs to have a couple martinis to interpret this new data. And, and, and he had confronted me with here. And, and I finally decided the doc's right. He's got a point. He's got, he's right. It's the job 
this job is driving me nuts. The board of directors does not understand sales. They don't know anything about sales. Uh, they want more sales. They don't want to spend money. President of the company, he should be gone. I put him where he is. I'm the guy that makes him look good. No one appreciates me anyhow. So I went down and quit my job. But I didn't quit drinking. In fact, it gave me just a little more freedom. And I went to work as a consultant. Consultant works good for a drunk. Of course, you don't have to show up. All you got to do is get results. And I worked as a consultant for about six months. And, and then finally a fellow came along and he offered me a job. And he said, uh, I want you to train my salesman. He said, I got a couple hundred of them. He said, about half of them are in the business. About half of them are getting out. And, and he said, I'd just like for you to come in and train them. And I thought, well, now this is a good chance to slow down, uh, get off the night work a little bit maybe, and and uh, and the pay was okay. But but the thing that really caused me to take the job was the fringe benefits. You see, I, he used to work for me. I got him into the sales field, and he started his own company. He had a worse drinking problem than I had. And he he understood that you don't get much done before 10 o'clock in the morning. He understood martini lunches. Uh, if you had a little hangover, he could understand that. He was my kind of guy. In fact, he told me when we were talking about the job that one of the reasons that he wanted me was because I could handle my liquor. And that he wanted a guy who could rub elbows on Friday at the martini hours over at the, the nice pubs in Champaign-Urbana with the rest of the business executives. And he said, that's the kind of guy I need. Well, you talk about a setup. This thing was perfect. Automobile, hospitalization, anything that you wanted, it was there. But unfortunately, it was too late for me because the disease of alcoholism was starting to tighten its grip and it was starting to take things away and I'd never seen anything like this before. It was very confusing and I imagine you have been there too. Alcohol, from the time I was this youngster when I had my first drink, gave me excitement, it gave me enthusiasm, it made me set goals, many of them unrealistic, but I was going somewhere. I had vision, I was excited about life. And here it was, and, all, and booze was around everything, and all the meetings and everything I did, I had the booze there. Now then, same bottle, same proof, almost the same price, it was starting to take things away. And I couldn't understand this. Why people were talking to me about my drinking when they used to drink with me. When they used to think I was exciting when I was drinking, now then they think that I'm going crazy. And they're telling me I'm having a personality change and things aren't working out well. It was very confusing to me. I've never seen a disease such as the disease of alcoholism. One by one, the disease of alcoholism was stripping me down. The things that were meaningful and important to me, it was taking them. And I have been convinced by evidence, by hanging around people like you, that if I should ever go out there and pick up that drink again and get started, all those things that are meaningful would leave. You've demonstrated that to me, that people who do not attend meetings does not know what happens to people who do not attend meetings. But I've attended enough meetings and I've seen them come and go. And those things that are meaningful, have you ever noticed those things that are so meaningful? That little three by five card that I can carry around with me would have some pretty simple words on it that would start leaving if I started drinking, like job and God and love and home and child and health and hope and wife and life. All these things could be marked off if I'd pick up that drink. That's all it would take. Well, my list was getting smaller, my self-confidence was leaving, my health was bad, the uh, money was tight, I had family problems, uh, a driver's license problems. I don't know if you've ever had those. I had 42 speed, or four, 14 speeding tickets in 42 months. I, I just back out of the driveway and a police officer just developed out of smoke and there he was. And they'd say, there's old Cheatham, who wants him this time? And, and it was, well, it was about this time that my wife discovered Al-Anon, and things started easing up around there, and this became rather confusing, too. Now, at this time, I had a son, and I still have him, uh, who was a junior in high school. Now, this kid was an outstanding wrestler at 185, and, and then he would get up to about 220 when it came time to play football, and he played in the line, and he played on two all-conference teams. Uh, uh, this boy can just best be described as a chip off the old block. This kid was rolling. He was good. His high school coach was an old family friend. And we'd had the game on Friday night, 
on Saturday morning, the coach came by my house. Now, it's 10.30 in the morning, and I'd already had a couple big hits of vodka, and he came in and visited a little bit. Now, I didn't know it, but the coach was on the secret committee that had been appointed to look into my drinking. <laughs> Have you ever noticed when there's a drinking problem in the family, it's the secret that everyone knows? And that's what this was. Well, he came by, and, and, and we visited a little while, and he said, Don, uh, I need to visit with you. Can we take a ride? And we did. We went out, we got in his car, and we started driving around talking about nothing. Now, drunk can spot that. <laughs> and we came by a restaurant there at the south of town, and he said, let's stop in here and get a cup of coffee. And we fell into the, to the restaurant there, and there was another old family friend, the mayor of Champagne at that time. And the coach says, there's, there's the mayor. Let's see if he wants to go get a cup of coffee. So the mayor falls in in front of me. I'm in the middle. And the coach, and they go all the way to the restaurant to the back room. Now that tight air started moving in. You've had that happen, haven't you? You just can't hardly breathe. You know there's trouble. You can smell it. So they took me to that back room. The lady set a cup of, a pot of coffee on the table and shut the door. Well, finally, after a little small talk, the mayor looked over to the coach, and he said, You know, coach, I've got a very serious problem. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, I have this very good friend, one of the best friends I've got. And he said he has a drinking problem, and he doesn't understand it. said his wife was by my office this week. Uh, she's very concerned. The children are very concerned. And, and said, I don't know what to do. Well, the coach says, uh, do you think he's the kind of guy that you could just sit down and talk to him about? Well, the mayor said, I, I don't know. It's just such a touchy subject. Well, about this time, I'm starting to get the drift <laughs> of what they're talking about. I looked at them. I said, you bastards talking about me? <laughs> and they said, yes. <laughs> well, the mayor said, now, look. He got new enthusiasm. Now, I mean, he was fired up. He said, now, look, I've got this friend, highly educated, very intelligent, and he had this problem. And he said, he got the thing whipped. He said, if I can find the time to match you and him up, he said, would you be willing to talk to him? Well, understand my situation. I, alcohol content is low. They got me down two to one, and I got no wheels. I said what any drunk would say, yes. What I didn't know, he meant now. <laughs> he fired out there and he got to the phone. Of course, you know the rest of it. The guy was waiting at the telephone, waiting for the call. And, and, and you talk about intervention. This is before it was even discovered. <laughs> These guys were tough, loaded me up in their car, took me to Champagne, uh, in, uh, and dropped me by his house. And they said, we'll see you later. <laughs> and away they went. Now, as a result... I went to my first AA meeting, but, but that was not the point I want to make. The point that I found out that day was that my family was still concerned, that my wife was still concerned, that there was something there. It, I, I thought it was probably all over, that you have convinced me that if there's any spark of life and any spark of love, it can be put back together with the help of the AA and the Al-Anon program. It will work. My wife is very supportive of me on my program. Uh, I'm very grateful that she doesn't remind me of the good old days every day. And uh, what a rascal. And when my uh, deportment was so unacceptable, she doesn't have to bring that up every day and review the old ashes from the past. We don't have to review that. I'm glad she doesn't have to have a couple martinis every night before dinner. Now, I realize your spouse can't make you drink, but I can testify to the fact they can make you thirsty. And, and, and that doesn't happen. But, but I needed to know that at, the, at that time. You see, what happened to Coach and the mayor, they motivated me. Now, they, we know in sales, particularly, that, that motivation is one of the small, strongest things. You can do almost anything if the motivation is proper. They were telling me about this factory worker who worked from four to midnight, and every night when he got off work at midnight, he walked a mile to the south and a mile to the east so he wouldn't have to walk through this cemetery. He was afraid to walk through there, and he'd been doing that for 11 years. He finally decided, I've been spending all this time doing this extra money. I'm going through that cemetery. And he picked him a nice moonlight night, and he walked right through that cemetery, and nothing happened. And every night thereafter, he walked through the cemetery. He wore a path through there. Well, he was walking down there one dark night, and what he didn't know is they'd left an open grave right in the middle of his path, and down he went. 
Well, he tried yelling, he tried digging, he tried everything he could to get out of there. Nothing worked. Very slowly, very surely, it dawned on him. He left spend the night there, and he did. He got over there in a corner, and by the time he got settled down, he heard another guy whistling down his path. Very interesting to him, saying things going to happen to him. Sure enough, down this guy came. Well, he sat over there in the corner, and he watched this guy dig. He watched him yell, and finally, when it looked like he was settling down a little bit, he just kind of cupped his hands a little bit, and he said, you can't get out of here, boy. But he did. <laughs> Well, you see, that's motivation. And that's what those boys did to me. They they motivated me to get to my first meeting. So it was, I don't know, 26, 27 years ago that I attended my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I went uh, for about six, eight weeks. I didn't drink. I was very uncomfortable. I was uh, rather miserable. And I had a pretty good idea that I was going to drink again. But you should have seen where they took me. They took me to an old house behind the hospital that had a bunch of old scabby shingles on it, didn't even have a step, just had a concrete block there where you stepped up into the house, old dirty coffee pot, chip cups, furniture was used, the springs coming up through there, the lights were dim, about 40-watt bulbs and everything, and a bunch of old people sitting around there talking about everything they lost. And they're sending me, a business executive, into a setting like this to get well. Well, I looked at them and I said, hell, uh, looks to me like the cure is worse than the disease. I'm getting out of here. And I did, but I used to go home and I'd tell my wife, I said, I don't understand that. I don't understand why they don't call on me. I'm a business executive. I said, they don't even know who's going to run the meeting when the meeting starts. Pretty soon someone will grab one of these books and they'll start reading all the thing and the meeting just kind of falls together and some guy's making coffee and they're going and they're coming and, and at nine o'clock they get up and they say the Lord's Prayer and the money. I said, where's the money go? They got some seedy bird in there with a bunch of old dirty clothes on and, and they pass that around. We all put money in there. He folds her one time, sticks it in his pocket and he disappears into the night. I said, if they just let me run a meeting, I'd get this thing put together for them. Organization is strong up here. Never did call on me. Never did. So I went uh, for a while, and then uh, I decided I'd go out there and get it. But the thing is, I bought the big lie, is what it amounts to. When I went out there to drink again, I was convinced it'll be different this time. Have you ever heard that? My case is different. That's killed more of us, those two things, than anything I know of. My case is different. It'll be different this time. And that's exactly what I thought, and I was very sincere. And, and it was. I went out there, and for a little while it was okay. But then I got into it again, you know, and I damn near died. And then, back in 1969, I, I finally got into a drinking bout coupled with some personal problems, and I, I just couldn't pull out. That's all there was to it, but I hasten to add to tell you that if I thought I could have stayed one more day, I would have. Because I was drinking a quart a day and a little beer to cool the pipes down, keep that whiskey moving through there. But I would have stayed, but I couldn't get drunk, I couldn't get sober. And I'd been going for about a week, and, and finally I got up one morning about six, six in the morning, I went down to my office slash bar, I wasn't working now, in my, I had my home, and, and I had some booze to, to cool me down a little bit, and, and I kind of went to sleep, I think. You know, you found out now you call it passing out, but I went to sleep there on the desk. About 11 o'clock that morning, my wife came down. Now, I'd been out there a year, going at it. But my wife came down, and, and she said, look, can we talk? Well, when I got to the point where I could make a noise, I said, yes. And, uh, and she said, look, she said, this thing isn't working too well. She said, look, if... If you don't love us anymore, if you don't want to live us with us anymore, she said, it'll have to be okay. She said, if you want, you know, to leave and go out and do your thing, uh, it'll have to be okay. She said, we'll work it out. But she said, would you please let me help you? She said, I can't let you die. And for some reason, I said, yes. Now, the only reason that she could administer to me that way was because when I went back out there to drink, she didn't quit going to Al-Anon. She stuck with it all that time that I was gone out there drinking. So she knew when the time was right. And when I said yes, that's when the miracle started. And we went to town, Champaign County Council on Alcoholism. We got some airplane tickets. And, and I was going up to Hazleton uh, for my treatment. And, 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 and boy, I, I was not feeling good. The only thing I could really... 
so I got got them all together. Now, as I look back on it, I kind of attended the conference other than conducting it, but at least I was there and explained. And then I finished the rest of that thing, and my wife took me up to the airport, and I was ready to go for treatment, and they announced the plane was going to be 30 minutes late. I told her, you go on, I'll catch this plane, don't worry about it. And she said, no way. <laughs> No, she said, I'll just wait with you. <laughs> and she did. Then I had a close connection at O'Hare Airport. Only had time for two drinks there. And then it's only 50 minutes up to Hazleton, up in Minneapolis. And I had two drinks on the way. And when I left there, I was ready to go. And I got into treatment and, and unloaded all my clothes there at Hazleton. And in three days, they, they came and they said, we're going to move you. And I thought I'd been promoted already, you know. I went down to this keyboat unit that they called it, and I started talking to the guy. I said, hell, I only stayed in that place up there three days, and they promoted me right down here. And they said, hell, you ain't been promoted, man. You was in detox. You just didn't know it. <laughs> Took about three days to run, run most of it out. But anyhow, at Hazleton, I found out some things. You see, everyone had tried to help me, but it wasn't working. But when I got to Hazleton, they told me I was going to have to do it for me. I was the guy that was going to have to do it. Well, I couldn't sleep. I'd, I'd get up at night, and I'd go down to this chapel, and, and I would get down on my knees, my hands and knees in that chapel, and those moonbeams would come through those red and blue windows. And it would come down, and, and I would pray. And I would ask God to help me. Just come and be with me, that's all. I've got a mess here, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. Just be with me. No bargains this time. Just be with me. And he did, and he's been here from that day until this day right here. He's been with me. You see, now there was there was no sudden explosion. There was no flashing lights. There was no one appeared over here in a burning bush. And no one come running down the mountain and, uh, and read a bunch of tablets to me. But it was a very slowly, very surely that this thing came. And finally I was reading in the book, The Twelve Steps and the Twelve Traditions, what had happened to me. In there it says, when the time comes that you are able to do, feel, and believe that which you could not do before on your own unaided strength and resources alone, then you've had a spiritual awakening. Well, I must have had one of those things, because that's exactly the way it was starting to work for me. Well, they finally turned me loose to Hazleton. I was there on a three-week program. They let me go in 30 days. I thought it was pretty good. That's real good for a guy with no money. <laughs> but... But anyhow, I, I got on that plane, and I got to thinking. No drinking, just thinking. And I got, uh, and my counselor told me, I think you'll make it if you go back to AA. If you don't, I don't think you'll make it. He made it very clear, and, and, and I got to thinking, I got on that plane, oh, I'm going to have to go back, oh, that dirty house and the steps and the cups and, and all that stuff. And, and besides that, when I was there before, I heard one of those old-timers, pull a new guy over to one side, and he told him, he says, look, boy, you just keep coming back. Alcoholics Anonymous is a million-dollar program shoved up your ass a nickel at a time. <laughs> so, I knew, <laughs> I knew I was going to have a lot of change on my hands when I got back home. But, you know, it's, I came back, I went to the meetings, sure enough, same old thing, they kept telling me, don't drink, go to meetings in between. I come in, I tell them, look, I'm having a little family problem, don't worry about it, just don't drink, go to meetings. If I told them somebody stole my car, I was convinced, they'd say, don't drink, go to meetings, it'll be back. It's just that way. For over 20 years, I thought, if I could just stay, I got sick of it myself. I thought if I could find another way to say, don't drink and go to meetings that I could do a great service to this organization. For over 20 years, I looked until I found one. And I found a way to say it over 20 years ago, or over, about five years ago, down in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I go down there, I've been going down there for quite some time, and I was in a seedy restaurant down there, and the only thing seedier than that restaurant was the bathroom. And I went into the bathroom, and there it was. There was a little sign hanging right behind the stool. It said, hang on to the handle till it all flushes down. <laughs> and I said, that's it. That's it. That's the same thing we're saying as don't drink and go to meetings. Because we come in here, and we hang on to the handle, and we let her all flush down, and then life becomes much gentler, much softer, a lot easier to contend with. So it's been a lot easier for me.
to talk to some of my people when I talk to them, look, you just got to flush it. Just get rid of it in that way. Well, you have many ways of telling me don't drink, go to meetings. It comes in many forms. Back in 1982, I'd been invited to speak to the International Doctors and Alcoholics Anonymous. You're probably familiar with them. They hold their own conference. You don't see them here. And they're big. And they were holding their conference this year in O'Hare Airport in Chicago, Illinois, and they invited me, a street guy, to come up there and talk to them. And I was feeling pretty good about this, and this was 1982, and, and I'm sitting in my office in Champaign, and it's hot outside. I'm talking about July, and I'm thinking tonight's Tuesday night, and I should go to my regular Tuesday night meeting, but man, it's going to be 105 degrees in that first floor of that church, no air conditioning. And we got a couple, three guys down there that it is questionable if they bathe daily. And and I was just talking myself out of going to that meeting, plus I was shuffling my notes around and what I was going to say up there at this big meeting, you know, to all these doctors. And the phone rings. My wife was working the front desk that day. She said, you're 2.30 appointments here. I said, I don't have one. All she said, I pencil it in. It's one of the boys. Oh, I said, one of the boys. Yeah, and she said, he's here. Well, about that time, he came around the corner. When he came around the corner, he reached in his pocket, he pulled out a pack of Salem's. He lit one, he took two drags, inhaled them both, and that was the end of the smoke. Now, when you see a drunk smoking like that, you know he's got something on his mind. He came in, he said, you know how long I've been sober? I said, no, I know it's been a long time. He said, 22 years. I said, 22 years? He said, 22 years until six months ago. He said, six months ago, I started drinking again. He said, i got to tell somebody about this. i got to explain it. He says, there's an explanation for it, and I want you to hear it. He said, I, I just closed one of the biggest sales that our company ever had. And he said, you know, I put that check in my briefcase. And he said, I drove by the liquor store and got a half a pint of vodka like I'd been doing it for 22 years. He said, I don't know what came across me. And he said, I went to the park and I drank half of it. And I went there the next day and I drank the other half. And he said, then I've been keeping it up. And he said, now then I'm working on the pints. Only he says, I'll drink half of it in the park. And then at night when my wife goes to bed, I'll drink the rest of it. He said, last night she came in and caught me. And he said, I'm glad she did. I didn't know because the quartz would have been coming next. And he said, for six months, I've been sneaking and drinking and feeling bad. And, and I said, well, you got any idea what happens? He says, I can tell you exactly what happened. He said, my sponsor died and I never got another one. And he said, I started missing meetings, and then I just completely quit going. And he said, the first thing you know, the thinking went. And then the next thing I knew, I was drinking. Well, to make a long story short, I went to my meeting that night. Uh, I thanked him for coming by, and I put my notes away, and I went to my Tuesday night meeting, and the three guys were there who don't bathe, but no problem. <laughs> They were there. You see, he came by and told me what you told me when I first started coming in here. Don't drink and go to meeting. And he passed the word. Stick with the winners. How many times have we heard stick with the winners? They were telling me down in southern Illinois. Now, I have a lot of southern Illinois stories because that's where my roots were. You know, on Monday morning down there, all the ladies wash. Only down there we call it wash. And every Monday morning, the ladies wash. And this was what was happening on this Monday morning. This little old lady, she jumped out of bed and she jumped into her tennis shoes and she put on her robe. Now, when she put on her robe, that's all she had on because she slept nude. And she went downstairs and she started doing her washing and she loaded the machine and she looked at the robe. And she decided it was soiled, she should wash it too. So she took it off and she threw it into the machine. And, and she got the machine going and, and about that time she thought she felt some water dripping on her head. And sure enough, there was some condensation on the pipes up there. And she looked for a scarf or a rag or something she could put on her head, and she couldn't find anything. But over there on the bench was her son's football helmet. <laughs> so she reaches over, and she puts on the football helmet. And she is washing away. Well, about that time, a little old gent comes down the back steps to read the water meter. And he comes by, and he looks in there, and he surveys the situation, and he goes on, and he reads the water meter, and he comes back. He looks in there. Now, the lady couldn't see him because the, she had her back turned, and then the machine was running, and she couldn't hear him. And he started back up the steps, and he got about halfway up the steps, and he just couldn't take her no more. And he stopped, and he removed his hat, and he bowed very gently, and, and he said, Pardon me, madam. 
I couldn't leave without telling you that I hope your team wins. <laughs> well, you see, that's what we are here. We're winners. We're on a winning team. And we need to stick, need to stick together. I remember when I was out there trying it all alone. I was miserable. I was drinking hard. The debts were piling up. I was unhappy. Uh, I was ill mentally and physically and spiritually and and I despised the sunrise of every day. Every day was just another bunch of crap. And then I met you. This was the only place that I could come to get well. About the only place left. That I could come to hear the message that, that I, I needed to hear around the smoke-filled rooms. Meetings like this. The message. The message of hope. When I came here the first time, I knew you had something. I could see it in your eyes. I could see it in your faces. But I couldn't put my finger on it. What is it that causes these people to be so happy? And it was hope. You see, you had hope. I had no hope. My life was hopeless at that time. I felt I had more reasons to die than I had to live when I came into this program the first time. And I still had to go out there and get a little bit sicker. But hope was the thing that I needed. That was it. Hope. You told me if I would stick with you, you'd show me a lot of things. I saw a few years ago down in San Juan, Puerto Rico, I saw hope before my very eyes. Before my very eyes, I saw it. We were down there in January, uh, the last uh, Saturday in January, they have the birthday meeting. Everyone comes into the old Allen Old Club down there, the Serenity Club, and they put their name on the board, how many years sobriety they got, and they total them up. And the last Saturday, they have the speakers. And we had 12 speakers that night. They got five minutes apiece. We had 89 years of sobriety. They put a chair up front. They don't even have to stand up. And all of the audience down there, it's just a small place. We can maybe get 50, 55 people in there. We had them down the hall, into the corridor, in the foyer. The room was packed that night. Iris got up there. She was first. She said she had 17 years. Everything was good. Bob came up. He had 16 years. He was doing five. We moved on down. Then we got to Friday Night Juan. Well, Friday Night Juan had five years in. And he explained to us how Friday night, he could never get by Friday night. And for years he came to the program and Friday he got paid and Friday night he got drunk. And then he was back on Monday and, and finally Friday night Juan got in five years. Hector came up. Hector had one year. Hector sat down in the chair. His knees were bouncing up and down. He was waving his arms like he was trying to fly and told us how AA had helped him get settled down. <laughs> and he was there. And he was happy. After we got through, all speakers had spoken. We had five minutes left. The chairperson says, does anyone have a burning desire? We got five minutes left. I was sitting there by a little Spanish lady, about four feet ten. She stood up. So help me, I wouldn't know she was standing, except I was so close to her. She got up and she says, my name is Tony, and I am a grateful member of the Al-Anon program. And she said, I want to congratulate everyone in the room tonight, and especially the speakers that we've had, for having the courage to change. She said, my alcoholic is still out there, but you give me hope. And she sat down. Well, I felt like I'd been hitting the stomach with a ball bat because she had put her finger on it. Hope. Hope. This is what we were giving to Tony. Hope right before our very eyes. I'm about through here, Mary. I thought you'd want to know that. <laughs> Just because it's your annual meeting doesn't mean it has to last a year. <laughs> you know, we could... I don't want to be in a situation. They were telling me about a meeting like this, you know, where everybody was coming in, and the chairman got up there, and they had speakers that night, and, and, and just as they get ready to start the meeting, the chairperson noticed one of the old bleeding deacons coming through the back door. The old guy had been sober four days longer than God, and, and, and she thought it would be disrespectful if they didn't bring him up to just say hello to the group. Well, they came up there to say hello to the group, and, and he got up there, and 20 minutes later, he was still saying hello. Well, the chairperson says, i got to do something about this. So they had a gavel. And, and he reached over and he grabbed the gavel and he brought it down with a thunderous roar. And, and he missed the table and it slipped out of his hand. And he caught the guy in the front row right across the eye and opened up a great big gash. And, and the blood was gushing out. And everybody rushed over to him. And as he was going down, he was heard to say, Hit me again, I can still hear him. <laughs> No, we don't want that to happen. We are circling the field. Doesn't mean we're coming in right now, but we got the flaps down. Just as soon as I tell you about Lazarus. Lazarus. 
I suppose your preacher's like mine. He'll give you every drunk in the congregation. Gladly. But on the, around Easter time, our Methodist minister has this sermon that he talks about Lazarus. Lazarus, the unanswerable witness. Now, I can't tell you this eloquently as he did, but the crux of the story is this way. Jesus was walking down the street and uh, bumped into one of his friends and he, he says to Jesus, Hey, your buddy Lazarus is dead. You better go see him. Say, he'd been dead three days. Well, Jesus went over there and there was Lazarus. And he looked at Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, you're not dead, you're merely sleeping. Come and follow me. And he did. And the preacher says at that point, Lazarus became the unanswerable witness. Well, I almost, you know, feel like getting up on the edge of my pew and waving my program at the preacher and saying, look now, if I was at home dead and been there for three days and some bird came by and told me to, to get up and follow him and I came back to life, I'd be a pretty good witness too. You know, the point is, it's exactly what you did for me. I was dead. I was dead on the inside. I was moving on the outside, but I was a dead man. And you came by and you told me, just fall in behind me. Follow me. And I'll show you how to whip this thing. And I'll be forever grateful for it. When I think of the work that we do and how we can work with each other and how effective we can be, I'm reminded of the story that they tell over in England about the old lamplighter. How he would come along years ago at dusk and he would put a ladder up against this lamppost and he would climb the ladder and light the light. And then he would move from light to light to light to light to light. And as the story goes... Pretty soon you couldn't tell where the old lamplighter was, but you could always tell where he had been by the lights that he had lighted. So I say to us, if we want to be successful, if we want to be more than successful, if we want to be personally and permanently and happily successful, let us lead our lives and do our work in such a way that it makes no difference where we are People will always know where we have been by the lights that we have lighted. I'm very pleased and proud and honored that you would ask me to be here today, and I'm just thrilled that I could come. Thank you.